right. The scripture this morning is found in the book of Isaiah, chapters, chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, and the whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among the people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which, with which he had taken the tong, with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and whom will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and tell the people, Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull, and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, O Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away, and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remain in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and the oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be a stump in the land. Thank you, Scott, for reading scripture for us this morning. I leaned over to Natalie and I said, why did, we, why did I pick that passage for this morning? And then as Scott was reading, I started to realize <laughs> uh, some of what it said and how it tied in. Um, so this past year, uh, Natalie and I watched all seven seasons of the show Gilmore Girls. Uh, if you're familiar with that show, I, I saw some facial reactions out there. Um, no matter how you feel about it, um, we also watched the more recent add-on, A, A Year in the Life. Um, anyway... Uh, in season four, episode seven of that show, uh, the town that the show exists in, uh, they host something called the Festival of Living Pictures. Uh, and so that Festival of Living Pictures is, uh, it's kind of like a town event where they recreate famous paintings with live actors. And so they, they paint the actors kind of how they would be painted in the, in the portrait. Uh, and they have to stand incredibly still uh, to, to recreate the picture. And so um, it's a little bit silly, but it makes for a funny episode. One of the paintings that they did was Leonardo da Vinci's famous painting, The Last Supper, right? Most of us are familiar with that painting. Uh, and the character who plays Jesus in that painting is a guy who, who's named Kirk. Uh, and if you're familiar with the show, he's kind of the town goofball. He's mostly there for some comedic relief. 
but it's funny, as he gets into character, he, in the show, begins to act like Jesus as he's walking around. And so here's, <laughs> here, here he is in the, in the recreation of the Last Supper. Uh, but he actually, at one point, gets up to preach, and he's standing on a platform, and there's a group of people that, are, that have been following him around. Uh, and he has some funny interactions with the character Judas. Anyway, uh, it's all pretty funny, uh, but as I was thinking about it, uh, you know, I actually kind of found some, some value in it. You know, this is a, a secular show, so they're not making any sort of statement by this. Uh, but as Kirk examined the life of Jesus to play him in that role, uh, he couldn't help but be affected by the life that Jesus lived and uh, starting to copy some of it for himself, not in a perfect way, but um, anyways. So today, uh, we're beginning our series uh, in the book of Matthew, uh, which is really a continuation of the last series that we did in the book of Malachi. So we're jumping from the last book of the Old Testament into the first book of the New Testament. Uh, And the messenger that we saw prophesied in the book of Malachi has now come about 400 years later in the person of Jesus. And so as we go through this series, I want to uh, just give us a couple overarching questions to keep in the back of our minds. First, and I mentioned these last week, first, who is Jesus? Second, why did Jesus come? And third, what does that mean for us? There's a a church that I follow, uh, and they exist in Portland, Oregon, and they frame their entire church around three statements. They say that they exist to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and then do, do what Jesus did. Um, and so uh, we, we're, we're Christians, we're little Christs. Or put another way, we are followers of Jesus. And so because we are followers of Jesus, we, we have to look at the life that he lived. Not just so that we can learn more about him, but so that we can learn to live like him. And so let me uh, pray for us this morning, and then we'll take a look at our passage. Father, this morning we thank you for your son Jesus, who has had such a lasting impact over the course of history to the point where uh, we can joke about uh, some recreations of him and his ministry in in a TV show. We thank you for your word that has endured also over the centuries and the the testimonies and the stories um, that we still have with us here today. So as we look at uh, this story this morning, we pray that you would speak through it to us, through your word. You would speak through me, uh, but that we would see uh, your son Jesus for who he is and what he did for us. So we thank you for that this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So turn with me in your Bibles. Looks like some of you have jumped ahead already uh, to the book of Matthew, but we're actually going to be in Matthew chapter 26 this morning. Uh, So if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you, uh, and it should be on page 703 of the church Bibles. Um, And so let uh, let me take you behind the scenes here for a moment of 
why we're starting in Matthew chapter 26. You, know, you might be wondering, why are we not starting in Matthew chapter 1? Um, it's because Easter's coming <laughs> and approaching very quickly. Uh, and so I'm kind of uh, approaching this series in the book of Matthew in a different way. Uh, we're actually going to start here uh, at the end of Jesus' life, leading up to Easter. Then after that, we're going to jump back to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Um, that'll take us through most of the year. Uh, we'll take a break in the summer to look at some spiritual disciplines and um, some really practical things. Um, and that'll take us all the way up until Advent. And so uh, Christmas time, I know I shouldn't even mention the word Christmas this early in the year, but Christmas time, uh, we'll be looking at the beginning of Jesus' life. Um, so we're kind of, you know, the end of his life, the middle of his life, and then the beginning of his life. So we're kind of going backwards here. Uh, but bear with me, there's, there's kind of some reasoning for it. Um, anyway, so we're in Matthew chapter 26 today, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 35 of chapter 26. Uh, and so you can kind of thinking, think of this as, you know, we're kind of para-jumping para into just like the end of Jesus's life here, like the middle of the action. Uh, and so today's passage is split up into three parts. You can see those on your outline. First, we'll talk about Jesus, the anointed one, verses 1 through 13. Look at Jesus, the broken one, in verses 14 through 30. And then we'll talk about Jesus, the denied one, in verses 31 through 35. Let me uh, read that first section for us this morning, verses 1 through 13. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste? they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And so we, we drop in here onto a conversation between Jesus and his disciples. And he's telling them about two things. The first thing, that Passover is coming soon. And the Passover here, just to provide us with some context of what's going on, uh, the Passover was a Jewish festival which commemorated the Exodus story, uh, but more specifically within that, the 10th plague that uh, God had sent on Egypt in order to freeze people. And in that plague, the firstborn of every family in Egypt was killed, except for the houses that had the blood of the lamb painted over their doors which when uh, the angel of death that came uh, saw that on the doors, then passed 
over them. So that's where the word Passover comes from. And so the Jewish people have been celebrating those events over the course of their history. So they have a festival to do so. And that is really tied to the second thing that Jesus says. He says, the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. In the same way that the Lamb was sacrificed to save Israel from uh, the Passover, so the Lamb of God would be sacrificed to save Israel from death itself. And so the disciples, they may not have realized all that Jesus was telling them at this time, uh, but there's actually an incredible amount of purpose in what Jesus is doing here. He's letting them behind the scenes to see that the events that are happening are all taking place tied together for a reason. After Jesus' conversation with his disciples, uh, we drop into another conversation this time. Uh, it's between the Jewish leaders uh, and the, the high priests. They're having their own meeting. They're discussing the events that are going on. Uh, and they're forming a plot to arrest and kill Jesus, but they want to do it secretly. They know that if they try to kill him publicly, they may begin an uprising during the festival. There's too much going on. Uh, and they want to kill Jesus for a number of different reasons. They think he's a heretic because he has claimed to be the Son of God. Jesus has gone around performing miracles healing people, uh, and doing so uh, on the Sabbath, which the Jewish leaders did not like. Uh, but they also want to kill him because he has challenged the, the power structure that they have created for themselves, right? And Jesus has convicted them of the things that they do and, and the heart that they have behind why they do what they do. And so this is, it's really a, a tense moment here. There's a lot that's hanging in the balance. There's a lot that is going to come. Uh, but then the story jumps and we see Jesus and his disciples gathered together in someone's house. And not just anyone's house, but the house of Simon the leper, who uh, would have been a social outcast of that time. And so Jesus is reclining at the table. I've always loved that verse. He's you know just hanging out with his disciples. Uh, and a woman comes and she just, dumps this jar of expensive perfume on his head. Uh, and it, it seems random. It seems a bit extreme. Uh, and I, this would make quite a mess, right? The disciples see this, and they get angry. They, they ask, why all this waste? See, they think Jesus would have wanted them to give this money to the poor, They've grown very familiar with Jesus' teachings at this point, right? They've followed him around. They've seen the life that he's lived. And so they're, they're almost trying to predict how Jesus would want them to respond. And there's all sorts of guesses as to how much this alabaster jar of perfume is worth. Some say uh, today upwards of 50,000 U.S. dollars. Uh, but most people would agree that this is about a year's worth of wages for, for this woman. So take your whole salary for the year, whatever it is, and just imagine yourself pouring that out on Jesus' head. It's a pretty incredible act of devotion and worship from this woman. The disciples uh, they think that this money could have better gone to the poor, but Jesus corrects them. 
And he says that what this woman has done for him is beautiful. The disciples, they don't quite see it, though they might think they do. Even the woman who has done this doesn't quite see it. But Jesus, he sees the whole picture and he says that this woman has prepared him for burial. Jesus is pointing into the future to his death once again. Part of the burial process for uh, people of Jewish descent at this time was uh, to pour perfume on the body. And so she has fulfilled part of what is yet to come. And the disciples, they're not completely off base, right? Jesus does say uh, that that money, you know, given to the poor is not a bad thing. But at this point, Jesus is still on the earth, in the flesh. And this act of worship has brought him the honor and the glory that he deserves. Jesus is the anointed one. Meaning that he is special. Jesus is set apart. In the Old Testament, when a king was dedicated, he was anointed. So here we have King Jesus, but where is he when he's being anointed? Is he on the steps of the temple? Is he out in front of the palace? No, the the Jewish leaders are in the palace plotting to kill Jesus. Jesus is gathered together with his friends, his disciples. He's reclining at the table in the house of Simon the leper, being anointed by this woman, surrounded by his ragtag group of followers that really have no business being together other than being unified through him. And Jesus is ready to go and die so that all of them may not perish but have eternal life. It's not really the anointing of a king that we would expect. And so if Jesus were here with us now, if he was reclining at the table in our fellowship hall, would you take a year's savings to anoint him? You put yourself in this woman's shoes. Is he worth that to you? Do you love Jesus enough to do that? You know, some might say that it's a waste for us to gather together like this on a Sunday morning. You know, wouldn't our time be better used out there helping the poor? Maybe. Helping the poor is important, as Jesus says. But we have nothing to give to the poor unless we start here. And we see Jesus as the anointed one. See, it all starts by giving Jesus the honor and the glory that he deserves. And from that place, we go out to then do what he did. First, the anointing flows onto him, the the head of the church. Then it flows out onto us, his body, to carry out his work in the world. But though Jesus is the anointed one, he will soon be broken. Let's move on to our next point for this morning. Jesus, the broken one. I'll read verses 14 through 30 for us. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? 
So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him. The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered him, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So the story continues. Judas Iscariot goes to the Jewish leaders who uh, we just saw had been plotting to kill Jesus. And Judas you know, just throws it out there. How much will you give me if I were to betray Jesus? Their answer, 30 pieces of silver. That amount is good enough for Judas, and so he lies in wait. So there's a huge amount of contrast going on here between the first section and this section. The woman has just poured out an expensive jar of perfume on Jesus' head, a year of wages. And here, Judas is bartering Jesus' life for 30 pieces of silver. Now, there's some debate as to how much 30 pieces of silver actually is, but whatever it is, it's far less than an alabaster jar of perfume. This is really how little Judas or the Jewish leaders value Jesus' life. It's not just an act of betrayal from Judas, though it is that. It's also an insult to who Jesus is and to the relationship that they had. But Judas's betrayal actually sets the stage for Jesus to then be crucified. Right As we saw earlier, the Jewish leaders, they, they weren't going to crucify him during the festival. Uh, but Judas's actions, they move things forward. And Jesus knows that this is happening. He knows that this is meant to happen. And so later that evening, he and the disciples, they're once again reclining at the table. And Jesus says to them, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. At this, the disciples become upset, right? They're, they're shocked. They're in disbelief. They go around the table one by one saying, surely you don't mean me, Lord. 
Jesus, he doesn't tell them exactly who it is, just that whoever it is has dipped their hand in the bowl with him. Uh, But instead, Jesus refers to uh, the prophecies about him from the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 6. I'll read this for us. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus, in another way, is predicting his death once again. And then Judas chimes in, and Judas, his response is, surely you don't mean me, but he says, Rabbi. Jesus says, you have said so. There's a lot going on in that small interaction, but Judas, he doesn't use the word Lord that the rest of the disciples use. He uses the word rabbi, which means teacher. To Judas, Jesus is not the Lord of his life. Judas does not see Jesus as the anointed one. To Judas, Jesus is just a good teacher. And this makes it easier for Judas to betray him. As I was looking at this passage this week, I kept thinking, you know, why, why does Jesus tell his disciples what's going to happen to him? Why is he revealing this information? Why is he telling them about his betrayal? I arrived at the conclusion is that because he wants them to know what is going to happen. He wants them to know that he knows what's going to happen. And when he eventually comes back, They will see that and they will place their trust in him. So as Jesus continues to talk about his coming death, he moves on to use an illustration, one that we're familiar with. He takes the bread, gives thanks for it, breaks it, gives it to his disciples. He says, take and eat. This is my body because he knows that his body is going to be broken. Then he takes the cup, gives thanks for it, gives the cup to his disciples, and he says, drink from it, all of you. But here he says a little bit more. He says, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. This blood, this uh, blood of the covenant, referred to, uh, again, from the Old Testament, a sacrificial death of an animal in order to atone for sin. And so Jesus' death would atone for sin and would form a new covenant between God and his people. Jesus closes with the promise that he won't drink from the cup again until he sees them. It's a promise that he will, in fact, see them again.
And what Jesus is doing here is incredibly significant. He wants all of his disciples to know that he has this under control. Jesus knows what is going to happen to him. He knows that he is going to die an excruciatingly painful death on the cross. He knows that his body is going to be broken. He knows that his blood is going to be spilled. But Jesus has confidence in the midst of all of this because he knows how it's going to turn out in the end. He knows that his death is not the end. He knows that he will come back. And he wants his disciples to have confidence too. He wants them to know that this meal is a way for them to remember what he will do for them. A way for them to remember that death doesn't have to be the end for them either. Jesus is the anointed one. But despite his status as the anointed one, he is willing to be broken for our sake. And so our job is not only to think of him as the anointed one, but also to remember him as the broken one. And not just when we do communion together here at church. It wouldn't be good for us to only remember Jesus every other month, right? But to remember Jesus every day, multiple times a day. Every time you sit down to break bread and drink from a cup, You're not necessarily taking communion, but you can remember what Jesus has done for you. You can take a second to remember Jesus, who was reclining at the table with his disciples, and he shared this meal with them. But Jesus' brokenness would not be the end of it for him. Though Jesus will be broken, he will also soon be denied So let's look at our last point for this morning. Jesus, the denied one. Let me read verses 31 through 35 for us. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. See, though all of the disciples have taken their turn denying that they would betray Jesus, Jesus gives them the sad news that all will fall away on account of him. He quotes another Old Testament passage, this one from Zechariah chapter 13, to fulfill yet another prophecy. Jesus is the good shepherd who will be struck, and his sheep will be scattered. So he's predicting his death a third time. But in verse 32, he reminds them again that his death won't be the end, but that he will rise again and he will see them in Galilee. But Peter, he kind of separates himself from the crowd. He steps out from among everyone else and he says, even if everyone else falls away, I never will. It's a bold statement from Peter. 
He's pretty confident about his faith in Jesus. But Peter is corrected, and Jesus predicts exactly how Peter will disown him. And Peter doubles down on this, right? He says, even to the point of death, I will never disown Jesus. In the last verse, all the disciples join Peter in that sentiment. And here the passage ends almost on a cliffhanger, right? What will happen? You know, will all of the disciples really disown Jesus? But this is where all of these sections, the three points for this morning, this is where they all tie together. If we don't see Jesus as the anointed one, if we don't remember his brokenness for us, then we, like the disciples, or maybe even worse, like Judas, will find ourselves denying him too. It's really a scary thought. The disciples, they loved Jesus, or at least they thought that they loved him. For three years, they spent almost every day with him, following him around, talking with him, listening to him, learning from him. And yet here, when push comes to shove and things get hard and Jesus is going to die on the cross, they turn away from him. I still remember a time in high school when I denied Jesus. This is part of my testimony, if you haven't heard that part. A friend uh, questioned me about my faith. He said, aren't aren't you a Christian? And he knew that I grew up going to church, but I didn't want to be made fun of by him or by my other friends. So I answered him, I'm not a Christian. I deny Jesus. I'll never forget it. See, all of us will face or maybe have already faced a choice a point in our lives where we need to decide, will I deny Jesus or will I accept him? Maybe that's a decision before you this morning. So how do we prevent ourselves from repeating the mistakes of the disciples here? How can we not deny Jesus in our lives when push comes to shove and things get hard? I would say that we follow the path laid out here for us in this passage. This is why Matthew has laid out these things in this order. First, we remember that Jesus is the anointed one. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Lord over all the earth. He is the King who is anointed. And we give him the honor and the glory that he is due. Both here in public worship, but also privately in our lives as well. Second thing, we remember that Jesus is the broken one. We remember that he went to the cross willingly to die so that we could be spared from death. We remember this around the table, as Jesus did with the disciples. Both the public table here by sharing in communion together, but also at the private table in our homes. And third, we remember that Jesus is the denied one. That in the big moments when we're faced with persecution, right, we're praying for the Bejwadas, right? That's an, an extreme case, right? For, for them to remember that Jesus is the denied one. But also for us as well if those moments come. 
And not just in the big moments, but in the little moments when we're faced with temptation to sin in our lives and we have a choice. Will I fall away from Jesus or will I fall into his arms? See, what's incredible about this story, yes, Jesus is the anointed one, Jesus is the broken one, Jesus is the denied one. Even though this passage ends and the disciples will go on to deny Jesus, Jesus would not deny them. Jesus knew that it would be hard for them to see him crucified. Jesus knew that it would be hard for them to really believe in him until they saw him risen from the dead, alive again. But despite that, despite their denial of him, Jesus continued to love them. Jesus never stopped loving them. And Jesus went to the cross anyways so that he could spend forever with them. See, even when we deny Jesus, even if we have denied Jesus in the past, he has not denied us. This is my testimony, right? I wouldn't be here today if my denial of Jesus disqualified me from everything for the rest of my life. See, from that point on, after I denied him, Jesus never stopped pursuing me. The same is true for you today. Even if we deny Jesus, he still loves us. He still wants us to come back to him. So let me pray for us. We'll close in prayer. Uh, And then, it's kind of fitting, no coincidence, we will share in communion together. Let's pray. Father, as we approach the Easter season, as we look at these passages that may seem grim, looking at Jesus' brokenness and the disciples' denial of him, may we remember that this was not the end. There was more yet to come. 